Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Remember Nazareth? <laughs> Big 70s hair band. Love hurts. You never quite recover from your first love, do you? Nothing like your first breakup. I mean, still hurts no matter what the age. All-time top five. I remember my number one, really my first and my last, romantic rejection. I like never dated again. Uh, Beverly Vittner, if you're here tonight. <clears throat> eighth, <laughs> eighth grade, Leonard R. Parks Elementary School. Uh, growing up, I was like fairly oblivious to girls, uh, but Beverly Vittner, I was told, had a crush on me all through seventh grade, but I was like too interested in like playing like army and ninjas like to care. But in eighth grade, well, the specter of high school looming, I actually, I took notice and, you know, thought, well, you know, it might be nice to like, you know, hang out with Beverly, go on the, you know, high school with like a girlfriend. So I waited all year, waited till the spring, right before graduation, and we had this eighth grade dance. It was called the eighth grade canteen. I don't even know what that means. Uh, but actually what it means is all the guys are going to line up on this side of the gym and all the girls are going to line up on that side of the gym. Like two brave souls are going to stand in the middle kind of doing this thing. And, and so, so actually I, I talked to her there, worked up my courage and actually sprung the question and it went something like this. So uh, Beverly, do you want to like, um, I don't know, hang out sometime? Just a sweet line, you know, <laughs> hang out sometime. And Beverly Vittner, year-long crush in the seventh grade, looked me in the eye in eighth grade and smiled and said, uh, no, not really. No, not at all, actually. And just took my 14-year-old heart and just kind of squashed it and ground it up in her hand. Now, that's almost 20 years ago, but I remember that night vividly to this day because I remember feeling confused, embarrassed, and just kind of like in shock. It was like in the movies where like your friends come up to you in slow-mo and go, are you okay? You know, that thing. And I didn't know how to respond. The dance let out. We were going to friendlies across the street for like ice cream and like to call our moms. Uh-huh. And, uh, and they stood at the light, but I actually just walked right past me, stumbled right into traffic, literally, because I was so dazed, eh, 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 just oblivious to what was around me. I rem- never remember feeling that confused. Um, love hurts when your affection is <laughs> stiff-armed or rejected, or declined. It doesn't matter if that was back in, you know, junior high, or if you're in a painful or failing marriage today, 20 years later. It still hurts, still smarts, and the wound can be raw, and it can repeat. Kind of like as John Cusack said, he said, you know, somehow every relationship since that Allison Ashmore has been some scrambled version of what happened there on that playground. It's weird how our experience with relationship as kids can actually be formulated, formational and kind of play out in our adult lives. Uh, had a friend named Gary throughout high school, uh, not his real name, uh, but he was the son of a pastor, great guy, witty, smart, one of the kindest and most generous guys that I know to this day, we're still friends. Yet it was like he had the worst radar ever when it came to potential romantic partners. In high school, he always had a girlfriend on his arm. I didn't date at all in high school, at all. Thank you very much, Beverly Vittner. Uh, <laughs> But there was always drama with Gary, always oh, just these volatile relationships. He'd, he'd, he'd choose these girls who were hot-blooded, and shouting matches weren't uncommon. Ugly scenes in the church parking lot. And we would just kind of laugh when Gary would get, you know, you know, kind of like a drink thrown in his face in you know, the cafeteria, like, up, oh, Gary being Gary. You know, we assumed it was just high school drama, but it continued into college. 
what followed him was just a string of broken relationships and these obviously like poor choices of like, you know, potential mates. It was obvious to us at least, but not to Gary. One summer, actually, he went through three women, three relationships, in which he introduced us to the woman by saying, pretty sure she's the one. (laughs) Over within weeks, usually under not so pleasant circumstances. Uh, The most dramatic breakup actually occurred one Halloween after we had graduated college. We all, like, had our first jobs and stuff. We were going to a Halloween party. I remember this clearly because Gary was dressed as a half-man, half-woman. Great. You ever see this, this costume, you know? It's like the half the beard here and lipstick on the other half, you know? And Gary was like, guys, I'm actually bringing Jen. And we were like, you know, expected this music. And he goes, yeah, I actually, I proposed to her, which had shocked us because they had been going out for 12 weeks, which in his book was like, you know, 12 years, this lifetime of commitment. And he had proposed to her and we were like, wow, so this is your fiance. And he told us, you know, it's going to be a long engagement. She's definitely the one. Well, so at this Halloween party, Gary and her and Jen arrive, and we can see instantly as we look out the window that there's trouble. He had a BMW. They pull up in his BMW, and Jen, his, it, she opens up the door to the passenger side, and she gets out, and you like, you, it's like with the mute up button on. You can see all the hand motions, but none of the words, but you can tell. Because she's just like this. She goes, like that. A lot of pointing. No middle finger, but a lot of pointing going on. And we're watching. We're like, oh, man, this is going to get bad. And Gary gets out on the other side. And he goes, yeah. And we're like, we're sitting there sipping the cider, just watching like, wow, half man, half woman. They're in it. <laughs> and we're watching this thing. And, uh, and then we see this. She goes, and she starts twiddling that ring finger. And we see her, and she must have been like sweaty or something or eating a lot of salt because she like had a time, time getting it off. But boom, we see she gets it off. And then we just see she pulls back and does her best Roger Clemens and fires it at Gary. And we just see Gary just go, and it sail over his right shoulder into the woods, in the dark, never to be recovered again. $8,000 is what he paid for that ring. He had a job in Manhattan at the time. And in his anger, Gary got back. He was like, oh, you know, you just then you're like, oh my gosh, she, she didn't. You know, you're hoping like, you know, I hope it's costume jewelry. But he gets back in the car, slams his door, because he's not going to be outdone, and he slams his BMW into reverse to peel out of the driveway and just kind of speed off. The only problem was is that Jen had left her passenger's side door open. So Gary starts down, was on an incline down the, the driveway, and her door wedges into the damp lawn, the earth, and just sheared right off. And we are watching, we're like, happy Halloween. (laughs) Trick or treat, man. And a costly one at that. I will never forget this. In all that time I knew Gary, you know, to this day, great friend, generous guy, seemed like he just always had this pattern of bad choices, of relational fender benders that always ended in painful breakups or just destructive meltdowns. And he really was unable to see any of his relationships through to fruition. And we always just kind of scratched our heads. And some of you tonight, here tonight, actually may relate to that kind of, you know, history. Maybe you have a similar history. Just kind of always these smash-ups, always going off the curb. Or perhaps you were on the other side of the car. You know, you were the one throwing the ring. <laughs> the one frustrated or rejected. Maybe you're divorced. You've been hurt deeply. Single or single again. Feeling alone after too many years of, you know, fruitless dates and feeling isolated, like, you know, I had my shot at life and I think I missed it. Well, tonight, this is a word of hope. That's where we want to end our series, with a word of hope. Because it's never too late to grow, to learn how to begin again, 
how to pick up the pieces and start over. And we want to end our series on great expectations by really speaking to those of you who are single or, like I said, single again. And that actually includes any married folks, okay, who may feel alone in your marriage. Maybe it's on the brink of falling apart. You know, I realize most marriages are far from perfect or like sizzling like we talked about. And so I wanted to encourage each of you today with a word from God. So specifically, let me invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah, okay? Your pew Bibles there, pass them out if you would. Make sure everybody gets a, gets a Bible in their hands or maybe you brought your own. We're on page 773. And this really, this book is an amazing book because it gives us a model for rebuilding a life that it's experienced relational heartache. And this may seem like a totally strange text to choose to address the subject of beginning again or starting over. But it's actually quite fitting. I'll give you a little bit of background. Um, Nehemiah is actually the last of the Old Testament historical books. And it records, it's a history book. And it records the history of the third return of the Jewish people to Jerusalem after their captivity. Here's the deal. Jerusalem was destroyed around 586 BC. And the exiles went, were sent to Babylon to live and work in foreign countries. So this guy, Nehemiah, wrote this book. He was a Jew, but he was living in Persia as a personal assistant to the king of the vast Persian empire. And he was the trusted cupbearer who ensured the safety and the quality of the king's food and drink. And when he heard that the rebuilding projects in Jerusalem were progressing slowly, he asked if he could go there personally himself to take a look at rebuilding the city walls. So after a three-month journey from Persia, Nehemiah arrived at Jerusalem and was devastated by what he saw. Because Jerusalem was Judah's capital city. This was the Jewish holy city, represented their like national identity. Think of like, you know, Washington, D.C. It's like the emblem of the nation. And it was blessed with God's special presence in the temple that Solomon had built. Jewish history centered around Jerusalem, tracing back to the founding of the Jewish nation by Abraham. But when Nehemiah got there, he broke down and wept when he saw and when he heard that Jerusalem's walls lay in ruins and hadn't been rebuilt. Now, you're like, why did this, you know, devastate him? What's the big deal about walls? Well, in the ancient world, walls were all significant. They don't mean much, you know, in present-day cities, but in Nehemiah's day, they were essential. They offered safety from raids and symbolized strength and peace. And the city walls were symbolic as well. It's like the Statue of Liberty. Imagine you went away, you know, to Europe and came back, and the Statue of Liberty was in rubble, right? You'd be like, wow, it doesn't personally affect me, but psychologically, what that represents, the crumbling of our nation. So the fact that these walls lay in ruins was a great source of shame and grief to Jewish people everywhere. So this is a story about a man, essentially, setting out to rebuild his beloved city's walls. And that's a metaphor for us. Because rebuilding the walls, in many ways, is commensurate with rebuilding a life or putting back together something that's been destroyed. The rebuilding process Nehemiah undergoes that we're going to just take a look at tonight, it has seven major turns along the way, the story that God gives us here. And so does the process for those who want to begin again to pick up the pieces and start over. Now listen, this isn't some clever seven-step you know, self-help process, okay? What I'm hoping you're going to do is see the seven major turns in the road that God highlights in Nehemiah's road to recovery. So I want you to walk out of here hopeful, but we're going to have to wade through some difficult stuff because even this topic is just kind of loaded. It felt the heaviness of it. And give guidance for those of you who are struggling. Because if you're here, maybe tonight you're here actually and you're like, oh, I didn't realize this was a message about, you know, smash-ups. This isn't for me. I'm happily married. You are almost guaranteed you are in a relationship with folks who are hurting and who could use your help. You know anyone who is divorced? You know anyone who's been running into rails or hurting relationally? Maybe you are God's appointed person, like Nehemiah was, to help in the rebuilding process. So listen in, okay? Here we are, chapter 1. The story opens with a scene of total devastation. Nehemiah is talking with some fellow Jews in Persia who say that Jerusalem is in smoldering shambles. Take a look at verse 2 and 3 of Nehemiah 1. They said to me, those who survived the exile 
and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, to a guy who's been away from this country for a long time, this would have been shocking. Because Jerusalem, that Jerusalem, the word Jerusalem literally means city of peace. (laughs) And he's been told it's been decimated. Back in its glory, Jerusalem was like one of the most beautiful cities in the ancient world. It was the envy of the Middle East. It was a religious and political seat of Palestine. And like I said, it had God's temple built by Solomon in 949 B.C. It was actually built on a hill overlooking Jerusalem. And it reflected the city's esteemed status. It took over seven years to build. Magnificent building. An architectural marvel contained gold, silver, bronze, and cedar. It actually featured two gold-plated cherubim 15 feet high and wide, symbolizing God's presence. Imagine a 15-foot... You know, angel here, made out of pure solid gold. It had an ornamental curtain in the holy place that was embroidered with gold and fine linen, full of golden, you know, tables, candlesticks, etc. And they actually had, outside of this temple, can you imagine, an over, an, a, they called it the sea, an oversized basin made out of bronze that could hold 12,000 gallons of water used for the priest's washing. So, like, impressive, magnificent city. All in all, an architectural marvel. And then... Nehemiah is told, how are things going there? And its current description is, it's been actually broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And he is just shocked. He he can't believe it. What? 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 If you were to look at this city at this point in its history and compare it to the heart of a man or woman who has just gone through a relational smash-up or a divorce, you would see amazing similarities. They're, they're both involved being just battered by destructive forces that leave a trail of ruin and smoldering ashes behind. Victims uh, now face a heat of great trouble and much disgrace, di- disgrace or shame. Both kinds of devastation, you know, plunge people into a sea of confusing questions and agonizing torment. friend of mine in his 20s just got divorced, finalized, sealed the papers, and he's like, Tim, I don't even know how this happened. He's like, w- w- what am I going to do now? H- how, do I, how do I pick up the pieces and start over? That's where I actually got this title from. He's like, and worse, what will people think? I mean, my life is over. And he can't believe it. What once was beautiful or full of hope is now destroyed or devastated. Think of the woman who discovers her husband. Everything's been sailing along with the kids. Everything fine. But he discovers her husband has been having an affair out of nowhere. And now the whole marriage, everything she's known has been called into question. Sailing along fine one day, and then wham, out of the blue, the peace is shattered. The walls collapse, and life seems to cave in. Everything seems up for grabs. The future, the kids, everything bleak. Or the man who's coming to terms with a wife who's just filed for divorce. He was like, Tim, it's like, a, it's like a tornado. He goes, you don't even know what hits you. It destroys everything in its path. And some of you know that experience firsthand. Either having gone through it yourself, or maybe you were raised in a home <laughs> where actually it was rent by divorce growing up. An engagement that gets to the whole wedding planning stage, imagine. And all the hopes that go with it, and then it's called off at the last minute. What? Shock, devastation. Or maybe it's just a long-term relationship that's come to an end. I had a friend actually just not engaged or anything, just was dating for actually about four years, you know, they're taking it slow, whatever, and now it's over. (laughs) They ended it. It was kind of like amicable, but like, it's over. And all the memories of what once upon a time and all the dreams are now faced with the harsh reality of what is. Hurt, embarrassment, confused, all at the same time. And what's interesting is Nehemiah's response to the devastation. In verse 4 it says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted 
and prayed before the God of heaven. And this is interesting here because this is the part that typically, especially if you're not from church or a Christian background or just investing in Christianity, you're like, oh, here it comes, right? Just pray and like put on a happy face and all gets better. No. <laughs> Nehemiah prays fervently. He cries out to God. He pours his heart out before him night and day, but it doesn't actually change his emotional state of being. It's not like, oh, happy all the time. It's okay. Rather, his sadness continues unabated, which reflects the difficult truth of the situation. Healing from a wound or relational destruction of that magnitude, like divorce, it does not come quickly. It does not come overnight. Look at, look at chapter 2. Look real quick. Flip your page. In chapter 2, it says um, he's talking with the king who he's serving there in Persia, and he says, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. You can underline that in your text. Sadness of the heart, which you or I might actually just call depression. He is so personally devastated that he can actually barely function and carry out his duties at work on the job. His pain so intense that there's, there's like no ability to hide it from his boss even. So for the relationally devastated who face an unwanted breakup or catch the one they love cheating or realize that they've, they've wasted all this time and energy in a dead-end relationship due to like a secret addiction. Ooh, Nehemiah's countenance reflects all the pain that his heart's bearing. It's like a numb, zombie-like state of being. Now, my friend who I told you broke up with his girlfriend of, of four years, he, um, they had been through like everything together, he anticipated getting married. But when she decided after four years that the relationship stalled out, he was, he was like devastated. And the strangest thing kind of happened. He like just kind of dropped out of life. <laughs> He actually grew a beard, stopped going out with friends. And I'm kind of like, well, you figure you want to be with others. But he's like, I can't even be with anyone right now. And he actually put on 10 or 20 pounds. You see the inner turmoil reflected in his physical appearance. And, and true grief is hard to mask, according to Nehemiah. I was talking with Pastor Glenn about this. You know, Glenn is our pastor of spiritual care here at Liquid. And he's also a licensed Christian counselor who has extensive experience in marriage counseling. Right? Oversees our mentoring program here at Liquid, as well as divorce and grief recovery. And he was like, Tim... When people go through this a relational smash-up, like of this depth, you should expect that it's going to have all sorts of effect from, from a, a, a significant weight gain or weight loss to bouts of rage, like just exploding out of nowhere. Depression, yes, it's right in there. Difficulty completing tasks or concentrating, focusing. You can't even think about anything else. He said, one woman I knew refused to do one thing with her home for seven years after her husband left her for another woman. Even the clothes that he left behind were still in their drawers and closets after all those years. It was like her life was on hold, like pause button, as she sunk deeper and deeper in depression while clinging desperately to the hope that he would one day wake up and return to her. And that's a sad and hard thing to admit, that actually her faith in God to like bring him back home was actually massive denial. So this is the hard part, folks. This is hard, I know. Because the truth that Nehemiah is showing us is that the beginning of the rebuilding or recovery process begins with a stark recognition of the reality of the destruction. You can't dismiss what's happened to you. And you need to be human and respond fully, feeling all the resulting sadness, the pain, and the anguish over it. Don't pretend nothing's wrong. God's word doesn't ask you to put on a smiley face and be like, no, joy, 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 happy all the time. No. He was honest about his pain over the fall of Jerusalem. And he poured out his heart to God. And that's significant. Probably the most crucial step if you want to have a shot at picking up the pieces and starting over is recognizing the loss and even the role, your role in it. Now take a look at this because the king feels compassion for Nehemiah. I'm in chapter 2 here. 
And he gives him a leave of absence from work so he can go back to Jerusalem. And so he goes to Jerusalem, immediately begins combing through the ashes of the city on his horse to view the full scope of the destruction. Look at Nehemiah 2, verse 13 through 15. Nehemiah says, By night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate. Amazing names for... (laughs) Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night and examining the wall. In other words, the damage to Jerusalem's walls was so severe that Nehemiah's horse couldn't even fit through the gates. (laughs) Whole armies used to come in through them. His horse couldn't even fit in. Everything's in shambles. But what's the first thing Nehemiah does when he arrives to begin the rebuilding process? He takes time to examine the walls. That's what the text says. He gets off his horse and begins combing through the wreckage. And the same thing with relational devastation or someone who experiences a a smash-up or divorce. There may be a need to actually step away from many normal life responsibilities so you can focus your reduced energy on surveying the damage. And that may include combing through the devastation by revisiting or you know, ruminating over the memories of the past, the lost dreams, in order to review the relationship. That's what examining the walls is the equivalent of, reviewing the relationship. In the wake of that kind of heartache, your mind and your heart start searching for answers to all sorts of questions. Like, how did this happen and whose fault is it? I don't think it was me. I think it was her. No, definitely him. And, and what could have or, or should have been done to prevent this? Your mind starts going. And those are the sorts of questions that are just the, the kind of thing that's great to pursue in like personal counseling. The skilled hand of a trained guide, even like Pastor Glenn, to help you not only survive the loss, but begin making some sense of the wreckage. There will be a very real need to count the losses and examine the amount of damage done. What are the, what are the dreams of mine that are now called into question? The, the, the lies I was told? Oh, I've been li- what, do I even, what do I tell our children? And I know this is hard, but this is critical, folks. And I don't want to get all therapeutic here and forget the spiritual nature at the core of this issue. Because at its core, Nehemiah shows us the way forward in his response to God. Nehemiah 1.4, again, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. His first instinct is to take his loss and his heartache to his heavenly father for processing. So too with the wounded heart. God alone has the capacity to fix and heal it. And Nehemiah instinctively turns to him at this time with his raw emotions. But here's what I love. He doesn't just vent to God about how terrible this is, how bad the enemies are, how awful the situation, ask him for vengeance on those responsible for the damage. Instead, something incredible in his prayer. Look at this in verse 5. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. This is an incredible thing, folks. But Nehemiah not only turns to God to process his loss, but begins by assuming an incredible posture of humility and owning his role in it. He confesses, what part did I play? And that's the difficult truth if you want to get really serious about healing and starting over in the wake of a relationship failure. There's the need to take personal ownership and confess the responsibility of the part that you played 
in the relationship failure. You know, none of us are passive participants. It was all his fault. <laughs> or the innocent victim. As much as I, you know, we may want to believe that we were. You know, I had a part. My issues came into play too. And there's going to be a need to look honestly at the pattern of my life to discover what needs that God, what God has to change and heal in me. And in this humble prayer of confession, Nehemiah gives us a pattern for true inward healing of the heart and soul. In other words, at this moment, folks, and this is, to me this is the hardest part of the whole experience. Under the guidance and illumination of God's spirit, the idea is you are to ask probing and honest, self-reflective questions before God. Why am I so afraid to commit to one person for life? Ah, hard question, even seeing it on the screen. Why do I always seem to gravitate towards emotionally unavailable men? What's up with that? Why am I, why am I so intolerant at the smallest flaws and imperfections in women? Like it happens again and again and again. We get together and I just wait and when I see the flaw, I'm out of here. Lord, what is that in me? And this is hard, folks. I don't want to pretend this is easy. It's actually not the route most people naturally take or travel. When you're hurt, just about the last thing you want to do is look inwardly at your own part in things. Who needs more pain, you know, or regret? It's much easier to lash out the failures of the other in your relationship, to play the blame game. And it's just a one-note game, you know. Well, it's all his fault. Or, dude, she was totally crazy. (laughs) Really? You had nothing to do with it. (laughs) Now, this is not an invitation to beat yourself up, (laughs) okay? And it's not necessarily something just go out and ask someone, like, how do you see me contributing to this? That's a brave question. Only to be asked of your most trusted friends when you're really ready to grow. But in your conversation with God, in your deepest, most intimate moments of prayer, drawing close to your Heavenly Father, who can be trusted to listen, who wants to heal your heart and redeem your loss, these kinds of confessional questions are essential. Why didn't I disclose to her my struggle with my secret addiction? Why Why did I want to just... Fix that myself, and why was I so willing to believe everything he said? Even when I knew he often lied to other people, I just, red flags, and I just blew through. Why did I give up so much of who I am in order to be what he wanted me to be? And folks, these kind of probing questions, there's a word for them in prayer. Confession. (laughs) You want to know what definition of confession is? Simply acknowledging to God what he already knows about us. But there's power in that. And it's the seeds of healing and the impetus for starting over. Coming clean with God about our part in the disaster. Praying like that represents our recognizing that, you know what? There are mistakes I made in places where I need to grow and I've contributed going off course. The people of God did the same thing, actually, in Nehemiah's day as they sought to rebuild the walls. Later on, Nehemiah 9, look at this, first three verses. It says, on the 24th day of the same month, all the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. It's one of the hard things about spiritual growth. But how clear our brokenness becomes when we walk through devastation and pain. Let's be honest, no one would ever choose it to go through a smash up or a divorce or so. But if you take your risk 
to open up your heart like this before God with humility, with honesty, with vulnerability, there comes an incredible clarity when you see how much we all try to arrange and to make life work on our terms. That's what sin is called. <laughs> Trying to arrange for life without God. And that clarity, though it's painful, it's a gift. Because spiritual clarity of that sort will always lead you to a season of repentance for, before God. And that's where healing begins. That's what any successful rebuilding program is preceded by. A season of repentance before God. A willingness to to recognize not only the loss that you've experienced, but your role in it as well. And those that process through that well do recover and find life again. That's a word of hope. New and often better than before. I'll give you an example of that in a minute. That's a word of hope. But it's also a word of caution for anyone like looking for a quick fix. Because that's what most people do. You know, we we have an expression for that. Oh, he or she is on the rebound. (laughs) Right? They just want to kind of move on to the next relationship without any time spent for honest self-examination. And it's like, like, why was it that my friend Gary, what was in him that caused him to gravitate towards such explosive relationships, have him blow up in his face, we'd see the smoke stain around his eyes, kind of daze, and just be like, next? <laughs> what is that? Why, why did he choose women? We knew, as his closest friends, were a disastrous match. Those that kind of hop, skip, and a jump over taking the time to ask God to search their heart to surface and forgive their failings, tend to get stuck, and stuck in like the worst places. Stuck in bitterness, resentment, anger, blame. You know, victimization, depression, self-pity. It's actually very common. You know it. You see it. And a sad part of that is that those folks often find building future healthy relationships to be almost impossible because they're carrying so much baggage into those relationships, which, you know, too much baggage. Things between, you know, boats, planes, and relationships. Okay, stop, pause, say la. Heavy, heavy. I'll just acknowledge that. This is heavy stuff. It's, it's hard. And I know that there are emotions even now churning inside. I just want to acknowledge that. But this is where the story of Nehemiah turns. <laughs> so if you're bummed out or you're thinking like, holy smokes, this is the most depressing sermon I've ever had, just stick with me. <laughs> because Nehemiah is a story of hope, of renewal. This is not all ashes and sackcloth and smoldering rubble. There is new life, new hope. And the Bible tells us, I think it's in Ecclesiastes, there's a time to tear down, a time to rebuild, a time to mourn, a time to rejoice. And in Jesus Christ, we worship a God of second chances. Maybe you're not even a Christian, but you're like, I heard that on the radio. You look at the cross and you see a God who specializes in bringing forth hope and new life out of tragedy and devastation. And so the next turn that Nehemiah's story takes is what he receives from God in response to his prayer because God responds with a renewal of his promises. If this goes, if you really honestly are after this and you begin uncovering those destructive patterns and, and, and offering, saying, God, I need you to work with me here, the intensity of that season devastation actually will lift in an amazing thing in its place. Renewed energy and hopefulness for the future. And you may be hopeless tonight and like, dude, I'm not there. God wants to lead you there. He wants to minister his grace to you, to illuminate your mind and heal your broken heart. And this is where understanding who God is makes all the difference. Because our God is a God who lives, exists to heal people, to restore you and give you hope. That's the essence of what Jesus said he came to do. Because a a thousand years, all right, a thousand years after Nehemiah, Jesus Christ appears on the scene in Jerusalem. And it was not restored to its former glory. It was still an occupied nation. 
But in Luke 4, we don't have time for it, but in Luke 4, Jesus announces his public ministry, and we told to do that. He took an Old Testament scroll, stood up before everybody, and searching and finding the place where it said Isaiah chapter 61. He turned there. In fact, you know what? Let's turn there. We got time. Turn there. Isaiah 61, page 1199, in the scripture in front of you. Talk about a God of hope. This is where Jesus got his mission statement from. This is what he read. He said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's actually where he stopped reading. He didn't even read the part that says the day of vengeance of our God. He's like, this is an age of grace. I am here to free and heal you. Look at the words, though. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, that is Jerusalem, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Look at verse 4. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. This is who God is. And these are the promises he's spoken to all of his children. And that includes you. If you are here tonight and you are brokenhearted, here is the truth. God has sent Jesus to heal you. If you are in mourning or grief, God wants to comfort you. If you're like Nehemiah and you're sifting through the ashes of ruined dreams, or maybe you're on just the the verge of that, you know it's coming. God wants to walk with you and restore your beauty, to, to bring you a spirit of gladness instead of depression and a spirit of praise instead of despair. That's the gospel, folks. That in sending Jesus Christ, the idea is that our God has looked at this world and surveyed all the damage and the hurt and the wounding that sin and selfishness has brought to his creation. And he's decided to do something about it. In sending his son Jesus into our world, he's declared his intentions to you. He's taken the initiative to rebuild broken lives. To heal broken hearts. To bring hope to relationships. That's the good news. That God literally looks down and sees your pain in your past and says, you know what? That's not all there is. There's more for you. I have more. I have hope. I have forgiveness. I have healing. I have renewal for your life. And those who put their trust and and renew their hope in me, look what he says. They'll rebuild the ancient ruins, renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. In other words, even if divorce or relational devastation, dysfunction, has been part of your family's history for generations, Like, you know, it's like, I'm not getting married, man. Divorce is like an immutable fact of my family's DNA. God's bigger than that. He has sent Jesus to begin the biggest restoration project of all time. And that truth, that promise of God, which we see here in Isaiah 61, this is the promise Jesus highlights when he announced his mission to our broken world. And it is the central promise that you have to claim if you truly want to heal and pick up the pieces and start over. You have to take God at his word that you can't do it and he wants to do it for you and that you need his help. So when we pray, we in essence pray back to him the words he's spoken to us. Okay, Lord, you want to heal me? I want to be healed. Be my healer. You want to restore my hope? Well, I need new joy. (laughs) This is what Nehemiah does. 
Back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4. He prays to God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. In other words, he moves beyond his immediate feelings of despair and devastation and boldly asks that king for the resources needed to rebuild. He's re-energized and takes hope that God will give him the strength to rebuild these walls. And this is critical for all of us, folks. Because this is what God wants us to do during times of any tragedy or loss. Maybe it's not even relational for you tonight. Maybe something sideswiped you this week and you're just devastated. It's at that moment that God wants to root his sons and his daughters in the promise of who he is and what he wants to do in you and through you. Your life is not over. I still have plans for you. And it's at this moment in the rebuilding process that those promises no longer bounce off the person recovering. I mean, you know, when people give you little cliches like, oh, you know, just trust God, or, you know, let, let go and let God, whatever. So, you know, it bounces off a lot of the time. But in this healing process, this is the moment where that penetrates your heart and your mind, becomes an anchor to your soul. And the result is that of you become reinvested in life in the future. And Nehemiah is like, I hear God's voice. He wants me to rebuild. From recovery now to rebuilding. Look at verse uh, 17 and 18. After he finishes sifting through the ruins and destruction, Nehemiah says this to those with him. He says, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Verse 18. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. After this, the difficult process of grieving, sorting through, confessing, Nehemiah senses in the midst of all of this, what? The gracious hand of my God upon me. And something incredible happens. It's like a hand reaches down from heaven and replants a seed of hope in his heart. Not just any hand. What's to say? A gracious hand. Key word, friends. Don't miss it. Gracious. Root word, grace. The most powerful word in all of spoken languages and the most distinctive element of the Christian faith, if you're wondering. Grace. God's extravagant loving kindness to those who've blown it. In sending Jesus to this world, God has said, you are not forgotten. I have not forgotten you. Not by a long shot. In all your disgrace, that is in all the the shame and the damage that sin has caused to your life, the wrongs you've committed, the sins of others against you, I am going to do something about it. I am sending you a second chance in Jesus. He has come to die for you and something more, to give you new life. Not just the cross, resurrection. The ultimate rebuilding project. In the wake of destruction, I have sent hope. I saw that movie, did anyone go see World Trade Center? Where you had those two men, those two heroic New York State police officers just buried under massive, massive, massive rubble. And I'm just sitting there through the whole movie like... Are you kidding me? It's a needle in a haystack. And that Marine who goes after them and says, I will not give up. I'll go round the clock waiting, hearing, just hearing just for a murmur, a cry, a whisper of help. Someone has come for you and wants to find you. Folks, I don't know where you are tonight, but this is God's word to you. If you're, if you're divorced, 
tell you something about yourself. You are not simply someone consigned to wear a scarlet D for your life and have no hope. You are far more than that. You are loved. You are graced. God has so much hope for you in his heart and a future for you in his plans. If you are single and hurting, God has more for you than that. He actually takes no pleasure in seeing you run into the same relational walls again and again. He wants to bring you out of that rut and out of your destructive patterns. You are loved extravagantly by God, cared for by him, especially in your season of loss and heartache. God is closest to those who are brokenhearted. And he alone can give you what no other human being is capable of, hope, the courage to begin again. By the way, that's what that fancy church word redemption means. You know, you always hear like, oh, the redeemed, the redemption, whatever. You know what redemption means? Simply, second chance. Only this time with God at the center. From his perspective, your life is not over, not by a long shot. And from God's perspective, he sees the road ahead, not just what's behind. You remember that amazing promise he spoke to his people in Jeremiah 29? I shared it at the beginning of the series. I'll share it again. God says to his people, he says, For I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. I'll hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Do you believe that? That God has plans for you. Or have you given up on that? That his intentions towards you are truly good, full of hope, and actually a future. Because I know the temptation, especially if you're older, or the smash-up is recent and still raw, even tonight, is to get embittered and wonder if this all isn't a cruel joke. You're like, maybe you didn't even want to come tonight. You know, it's like, I don't even need to be reminded of all that's happened to me or what I'm going through. God says, press on and press in. Press into me. Seek him out and you'll find him. He wants to heal and rebuild your life, but you've got to want it. You've got to ask him for it and find the courage to take a step towards the hope and the promise of who he is and not just what's happened to you. When Nehemiah takes that step, it, this his story takes an incredible turn here. What I would have called my college literary class is a redemptive twist, right? Not only does he reach out to God, he, but God answers his prayers, plants the seed of hope that says rebuild the walls, or perhaps in your case, rebuild your life. Believing God is who he says he is, that he's close to the broken heart and reveals himself to you who are earnestly seeking him out. And here's why. Because it's not in the superstars who have it all together that God receives the most glory. God receives the most glory by turning around bleak situations. By confusion into vision and hope. So just take a look at Nehemiah's trajectory so far. Could you just look at this? I mean, I know I'm just kind of ripping through this thing, and obviously it takes a lot more time, folks. It doesn't happen overnight. But the road to recovery, this is not traveled by many people, (laughs) but it's there. And God himself wants to be your guide on it, but takes courage and perseverance to travel. Now, if you do work through this, recognizing devastation, responding with your sadness, your humanity, reviewing the loss and confessing your role in it to God, claiming and renewing yourself in his promises, if you go that far, it may not be smooth sailing from there. (laughs) If you rely on God and take steps forward to rebuild under his direction, there will likely be opposition, (laughs) just as there was for Nehemiah. And not just from your enemies, but from friends and family. (laughs) That's the hard news too. The person recovering from divorce or relationship devastation will be shot at sometimes by family or friends who see them, him or her, as a project to fix. Some of you feel like someone's project? (laughs) 
Or they may see you as like second class. You're like, oh, well, she's damaged goods. Or begin criticizing you by pointing out all of your faults and shortcomings. That's exactly what happens in Nehemiah 4, 1 through 3. It says, when Sambalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he'd break down their wall of stones. (laughs) Any rebuilding that God does in a life especially one that is on the track of healing and recovery due to his power, is a target for the enemy. Why? Because a life that's being rebuilt from the ashes is the most dramatic testimony to God's power in this earth. To redeem and heal and reclaim that which was formerly broken. And people who are close to you, these guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, they lived in close proximity to Jerusalem's gates. They may make insensitive or discouraging comments. They may judge you or blame you for the breakup or begin giving all kinds of like, unsolicited and just kind of worthless advice. (laughs) You ever have that one? Like, who asked you? All the while feeling completely entitled to be doing so, since I'm just trying to be helpful. (laughs) Anyone familiar with that? Like, people suddenly become relationship experts when they hear that you're going through a painful breakup. One woman I know was told by her mother after her divorce, you'd better hurry up and get back out there uh, dating while you still have your looks. (laughs) True. That's not a punchline. Another was told, no, you know what? It's your religion that's the problem. I mean, it's okay to go to church, but you're going too far with this Jesus stuff. This will scare men away. See, another was told, yeah, after another breakup, you know what? Men aren't going to stick around if you're not giving them, giving them sex. Stop holding out for them. It's at this moment, folks, that naysayers, distractors, taunters, advice givers, they all come out of the woodwork like cockroaches in a cheap motel. They, like, echo back to you all the worst of your fears, which are already reverberating in you. And so it was for Nehemiah, too. He's trying to do something good, something God-honoring, restoring the city, rebuilding the wall, something God told him to do. And what are his neighbors yelling out the window at him? It can't be done. You can't do it. A fox is going to walk in the walls and crumble it. It's hopeless. Give up. This happens throughout Nehemiah's story. All, it gets worse in chapter 6. But that's the spiritual reality. Any progress or redemption God wants to bring will be under attack or criticized by others, even those close to you. Now listen, that doesn't mean they're your enemies. <laughs> It does mean that you should expect to receive opposition, which is another opportunity to simply draw close to God again, his grace, and immerse yourself in the promise of who he is and what he wants for you. It's no time to lose heart or turn back. Because at this moment, you're going to uncover some partners, people who come out of the woodwork as well. True friends. Brothers and sisters in Christ who will throw themselves into the process of helping you rebuild. They get it. They don't judge, they help. They're less concerned with how this happened, whose fault it is, and more concerned with helping you reconstruct your life. And those are true friends that kind of rise to the surface when life is hard for you, like those who scour to the wind. If you flip over to Nehemiah 3, we don't have time for it. Just skip over to Nehemiah 3, would you? You'll see it's the whole chapter is just a list of all these faithful heroes and friends who come alongside Nehemiah in the rebuilding project. Look there, it says, um, Eliashab, the high priest, and the fellow priest went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it, set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams, put its doors, bolts, and bars in place. And it goes on and on and on. I can't even pronounce verse 6. I don't even know. But out of this woodwork, when Nehemiah thinks he's all alone, the rest, all of a sudden, a few people start opening their doors and walking out with a hammer and say, I'm in. I'll help you. 
And it's interesting to note that God supplied not only the allies, but the many resources needed to complete the project. Wood, bolts, bars, cedar, all this made by goldsmiths, priests. Point, you're going to need a variety of people. Pastors, counselors, teachers, friends, spiritual mentors, your small group to support you in the rebuilding process, to encourage you, to speak into you, to help you take steps forward that you couldn't take alone. Other material resources will be needed. You know, books, CDs, sermons, recovery studies. There's some great resources out there that are very wound-specific. There are actually three great ones I can recommend to you tonight. I'll leave them up here after the message. But this one is just fantastic. New Life After Divorce, The Promise of Hope Beyond the Pain. It's written by this guy, uh, Bill Butter, which is a top-notch resource. It's, it's a really encouraging. It's the end of your marriage, not your life. Overcoming Relationship Regret. If you identified with the idea of patterns attracting unhealthy people, oh man, Top Notch by Dick Purnell. It's about uncovering the blind spots we all have. Or the Single Again Handbook. And this is really gives a great picture of how to get a fresh start after coming to terms with the crushing experience of, of divorce. And, and folks, it's not overnight. The process involved is long, but you're not alone. You've not only got God on your side, you've got others. You've got brothers or sisters here at Liquid or in your church. That's one of the main reasons, by the way, the Bible instructs us to unite with a local church because you can't do it alone. You will lose heart or you will lose hope. God wired you for community and it's bringing others alongside you that he reveals more of his grace. I want you to imagine Nehemiah standing there among this whole circumference of the city, everything in ruins, and then suddenly those doors open and someone else came out with a saw and a hammer. And started working alongside him. When the whole community shared the mission of rebuilding the walls. Tonight, maybe you've been untouched by divorce or relational heartache. You're like, this doesn't apply to me. You know what? You have been blessed. But you've also been called to help. To come alongside those in your life and in your church. Who are wounded or struggling. Not to judge or condemn or gossip or spout off spiritual cliches. But to offer an ear to listen. An arm around the shoulder to comfort and roll up your sleeves to help. My wife grew up divorced. No, she (laughs) would That'd be weird. (laughs) We're not divorced. Okay, get that out of the way. My wife, uh, actually her mom had her at the age of 18. And they were married for two years and then divorced it by 20. And so my wife grew up for the first 12 years of her life really with a child raising a child. (laughs) And... um, her mom had a real dramatic conversion experience, came to a church to sing in a wedding, and she heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and said, this can't, this, if this is true, I'm in. Because Lord knows my life needs help. And when that happened, they joined that church. They just became part of it. And something incredible happened in my wife's life when she was about six or seven years old, I think she says. Um, one of the men in the church who was married took an interest in Colleen and her mom, but not that kind of weirdo interest said, um, you know what, I see you have a little girl there, <laughs> and I've got two boys and two girls, I've got four kids, <laughs> I know what it's like, I don't know what it's like, but I know your daughter could use a male influence in her life, and so I want to ask your permission to take your daughter with us on vacation, and he began taking Colleen along with his four children on family's vacations every summer and every fall, she would go and spend holidays with them. And if you met my wife, she has no business to this day being as whole and sane and balanced as she is. It is by God's mercy 
in one man who said, I can do more. I can do more for that single mom. I can do something that she can't do. And he came out of his house and said, I'll help rebuild. And I'm blessed by it today. That's why I'm choked up. I owe a lot to that guy. It's a big deal. What is God calling you to do to step out of your house and help rebuild or reconstruct the life of someone who's hurting? He needs your help. There's so much we can do. There's so much to be done. When that happens, miracles happen. My wife's life is an example of that miracle. In Nehemiah 6, we see the picture of the miracle that happened, something that no one expected. The wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized <laughs> that this work had been done with the help of our God. In the end, <laughs> in Nehemiah's city, in your life is meant to be rebuilt to the glory of God. To show the world that the enemy does not have the final say. <laughs> that the walls can be repaired in spite of those who thought it can't be done. It's at this point in the process, folks, we experience God's freedom. Freedom from guilt and shame, whether you're divorced or alive and renewed, grateful for what you've learned and how you grew. You'd never choose it for yourself. Or humbled by the mercy and forgiveness of God. Just more self-aware of your own faults and more forgiving of the faults of others, you get grace and you're ready to move on to new friendships and relationships. And sadly, that's not very common, the miracles of this sort. But you see examples of this, even among our family here at Liquid. I, I think of two of our key leaders here at our church, I won't use their names, but they were remarried after two broken marriages. And, and, and if they, you talk with them, if they share their story with you, you realize, you quickly realize, they weren't remarried as like a means of quickly like numbing the pain of their broken hearts, like... This was the culmination and capstone of years of working through the divorce recovery process to arrive at the point where they could love each other well out of their healing rather than hurt each other out of their pain. And when God makes good on his promise to rebuild and heal and restore an entire city or a single human life, it's cause for a great celebration and thanksgiving. That's what we call worship. Because <laughs> it puts God's glory on display. All of Israel's enemies were like, they realized this work had been done with the help of God. If you are going through a divorce or breakup, you've gone through one, God intends not only to heal you, but that you become a living example of his power to rebuild broken lives. That's cause for celebration, for worship. And that's what the people of Jerusalem do in Nehemiah 12, where the walls are dedicated to God with the sound of singing. I'll end here, verse 27. It says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem... The Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Singers were also brought from the region around Jerusalem. I had the leaders do to go up on top of the wall and kick it with two large choirs to give thanks. And you realize this is God simply making good on Isaiah 61 to exchange a spirit of despair for a garment of praise. That's your future. That's the future God envisions for you. No matter where you are, that's what he wants for you in the future to come, even though you may be wounded and hurting in the present now. Can you, can you imagine a day on the other side of what you're going through when you have reason to celebrate? 
when you are filled with joy because God's gracious hand has been upon you. (laughs) Folks, in sending Jesus to die for your sins and begin your healing, God has reached out his hand to each one of us and said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. His hand is there for the taking. I mean, the journey is there for you, and he wants to lead you on it. But it's up to you to accept his offer. It's a narrow road, not traveled by many folks, but you have a guide who knows a thing or two about pain and redemption, yes? And Jesus Christ is the reason you take hope today, the reason to ask God for the courage to begin again and pick up the pieces and start over. Your life is not over. God is with you, and he is for you, and we are too. Let's stand for prayer. I want to ask Pastor Glenn to come up just to lead us in a special prayer of of renewal for all of our um, divorced or hurting friends and family members here tonight. Glenn, I know there are many people here among us tonight that are probably somewhere relating and connecting with what Pastor Tim has talked about in terms of your heart being broken and needing that touch from God. And I want to invite our entire community to join together now in a time of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father God, um, we come before you tonight um, in our community here this evening. There are many people whose hearts have been shattered and broken through the pain of, uh, of abandonment, of divorce, of relationship smash-ups uh, that have not gone as they'd hoped. They are not in a place today that they would have ever expected or anticipated, but they're there nonetheless. God, it's our prayer tonight that your spirit would come in a very strong and powerful way to lift them out of the place that they are and to point them towards the future, that you would instill and infuse into their hearts a spirit of courage, of hope, of um, confidence that you will lead them to that better place that you have in store for them. We thank you, Father, for this message. It's a hard message a painful and difficult one that opens up hearts and even gets us more in touch with uh, some of what's happened and some of the pain that's there. Heal that pain, Lord. Restore and renew as only you can do, and we'll give you thanks. We pray this in Jesus' name.